namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami So it's very delightful to see so many people. I've been back in the UK for over a year now, and this is, these events have all been limited or non-existent. So on Magapuja today, seeing so many lay people able to attend here in the temple is very pleasing. So this is a traditional Theravada and annual celebration, the 16th of February. And it, it's about when the, when 1250 Arahants assembled spontaneously to pay respect to the Buddha. And in those days, that was 2,565 years ago, they didn't have internet or iPhones or mass media and media to communicate with each other. So it was completely spontaneous. So this is a celebration of that event. And then the Buddha gave the Ovada Padimoka. So this morning we listened to a recitation of the traditional 227 rules of the Padimoka in this tradition. And then the Ovada Padimoka is very brief, which I'll, I haven't memorized it, so I'll read it to you. It starts out, patience is the highest austerity. Nibbana is supreme, say the Buddhas. He is not a samana who harms others, and he is not a recluse who abuses others. To abstain from all evil, to cultivate what is wholesome, to purify one's mind, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. To speak no ill, to do no harm, to keep the precepts, Knowing the moderation in eating, cultivating seclusion and meditation, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. So, this is just a general reminder to us all of the general advice to live a good life is to do good, refrain from doing bad with action and speech. So these are what we call the precepts. Patience is the highest austerity. So reflect on that. And learning in modern life, we have so many opportunities to develop patience, such as during this past year, past several years with the COVID pandemic, 
which has restricted movement and we've had quarantines and isolations and bad news and a continuous flow, it takes patience to live through these rather scary, frightening, unwanted, unpleasant experiences. So when I first met Lung Po Cha, one of his first teachings to me was to develop patience. And uh, I had to admit I did. That's something I never really cultivated to any great degree as a lay person, wherein uh, training and life in Wat Bapong in those days, uh, if you weren't patient, you couldn't survive. You couldn't bear the lifestyle because it was the whole tradition was gave us a chance to develop patience and to understand it, not just to grit your teeth and bear it kind of patience, uh, but patience with wisdom. Then the general advice to do good, refrain from doing evil is, is, uh, this is what we can determine in our lives to use our forms, these physical bodies, to, we can do any harmful things with them or good things, and we have a choice in the matter. So, like to determine to, to do good and refrain from doing evil. So, mentally, emotionally, sometimes we, we have, we want to harm somebody, take revenge, insult, or, or, uh, take, re uh, insult others with our speech. But we, we refrain from acting, from speaking on those feelings in the mind. So this we can take responsibility for, for what we do with our bodies and with our speech. With our minds, we can't be responsible because thoughts come and go, conditions arise and cease that are beyond any control of ours, the continuous inexorable changingness of the, of the conditions of our physical bodies, our senses, the planetary life that we are witnessing at this time are beyond our control to make it just a pleasant, uh, and helpful experience to, to everything and all creation. But we respond to it. We can respond to it with loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. And this takes patience. These are not words that, that we can just automatically become love, uh, full of loving kindness at every present moment of our lives. When sometimes we feel very angry or resentful towards others. <clears throat> and so we, you know, we, through the first part of the precept, we refrain from speaking on that or acting on it. But with wisdom, we can be aware that, that, uh, hating somebody, being angry at somebody is something we don't speak following our speech with or with physical action. So this is what a samana life really means. 
being responsible, living in society, and in a way that our lives are not creating unpleasant conditions for others that live with us, that we share the society, the families, the social situations with. And then to develop wisdom or bhavana or meditation. So in the traditional Pali teachings, there's dana sila bhavana. Dana is uh, is generosity. So dana is a very good foundation for life. To be generous, not to be stingy or selfish, creates a sense of joy in our lives. If we're selfishly oriented or stingy with what we have, uh, then that, those mental states don't uh, prohibit any kind of joyful experience in human life. So dana, the generosity, is, it gives us a sense of sharing what we have with others that need it. So, that's a basic kind of foundation for happiness in the world, in the society. So, Donna comes at the beginning, then Sila, the precepts, taking responsibility for what we say, what we do with our bodies. And then Pawana is meditation or learning to use wisdom rather than just our emotional feelings of the moment, developing or cultivating or realizing that wisdom is our true nature. Because on the ego level, most of us, you know, when we ordained as samanas, we thought of, I never thought of myself as a wise person. I thought by ordaining and practicing meditation, I will get wisdom, I will develop wisdom. So that's the ego, the sense of me as a person in a society, in a sangha, who sees himself in this way because on a personal level, there, there isn't a great deal of wisdom available. One lives a life through reactivity, through habit, through conditioning, without realizing it, we're the victims of our habits. Where the, then we study wisdom, you know, like in university, I love to study, uh, take courses on wisdom and philosophy, and I like to read about wise sayings from the sages of the past, the wisdom of the Buddha, the wisdom of the saints, wisdom of the sages, and of course, it's all inspiring. So one reads a lot about wisdom, but that's not the wisdom that we can cultivate or really recognize and see as our true identity. So, the teachings of the Buddha, as he, after his enlightenment, just the, the basic first sermon, the Four Noble Truths, is a wisdom teaching. 
it's not wisdom in itself, it's words used to, to point out wisdom. It's a directional sign. So if we just memorize the Four Noble Truths, that's to be encouraged. I encourage everybody to memorize the Four Noble Truths. But that still is not, doesn't make us wise just through reciting what we read in the scriptures. And it's through bhavana, through meditation, that wisdom starts manifesting. We realize wisdom is our true nature, not something we acquire through, through hours of sitting practice or meditation retreats or from the scriptures, or from reading all the books on wise sayings of sages of the past. So when I, this is a reflection to point out that wisdom is not something you lack. All of you, it's, it's the very basis of reality. And we don't notice it because we're so bound to our delusions, the sense of I am this physical body is a basic delusion. So that's ignorance, this view that I am this physical form sitting here, speaking at this time, that identify that that's my identity, because that's the conditioned identity that I've acquired after I was born. We all identify with our bodies as our, as what we are, you know, so we have passports, birth certificates, and all kinds of photographs, all kinds of things that reinforce this sense of identity with the physical body, with the face we have, with a gender, whether you're male or female, or black or white, or whatever, these, these identities uh, form the sense of a self, a separate self. And as long as we're bound, attached to these identities, then we suffer. Because we're not using natural wisdom available to us every moment, but operating just from the momentum of habits, of prejudiced identities, some of the conditioning is good, some of it is terrible, it varies and changes. And so, like I notice in my generation, the conditioning, the sense of a ego for an American male was, was uh, very different from the present day attitudes towards the ego of how men should be in the present society. but it's conditioned sense of self. And so we investigate, like the, the first noble truth of suffering, it's not a, you know, so I want to emphasize, this is a noble truth, not ultimate reality. It's not a metaphysical refuge. We don't take refuge in suffering. We understand it. We awaken to it. The suffering we create out of this ignorance of I am this person, this personality, this form, and all the other identities that 
I've acquired since I was born up to the present moment, if I cling to these identities, then I suffer. So like old age, it could be really an experience of suffering. If I still was bound to the identities of a separate self that I formed, uh, that I was conditioned by after I was born to my parents. Because I'm not the true identity. There's no identity as a separate identity. Wisdom is universal, is Dhamma, is the way things are. And the Buddha pointed to this <clears throat> so very, very clearly in just the, the simple teaching, the wisdom teaching, all conditions are impermanent. And in bhavana, with vipassana, what we call vipassana meditation, it's this, this ability we have to witness, to observe change, impermanence, just through uh, the physical body as it ages with its sensations, its feelings, its uh, sensory activities, its m mental habits, its emotional habits. These are constantly changing according to other conditions. So everything, a condition depends on other conditions. You can't uh, create a permanent, perfect condition. And so many of the experiments in my lifetime on a political level or a social level have been trying to create perfect conditions out of the ability we have to imagine how everything should be if it were perfect. But the, that's, there's no wisdom in that. That's, an, that's what we call idealism. We create idols of perfection. But perfection doesn't lie in the, in the conditioned realm because of its very nature is, is impermanent, is anicca, the Pali word for impermanence. So, in, so we don't just believe in impermanence because it's in the scriptures and the Buddha pointed to that, but we investigate. And that's bhavana, beginning to really see the, the changing nature of your own emotional habits, how just uh, the weather can affect you, uh, what you're eating can affect your mood, how whether somebody smiles or frowns at you, how it affects you emotionally just for, for an instant. And what is it that is aware of impermanence is Conscious awareness, wisdom. It's aware of the way things are. All conditions are impermanent. But the teaching itself, all conditions are impermanent, are words, so they're impermanent. But it's pointing to the reality. So, bhavana, or meditation, is really using, waking up to our right, our human right, and our ability as individual human individuals to use wisdom with our lives as we live them, whether it's in the Sangha or in lay life, wisdom is available to us at every moment.
So ignorance, when we talk about ignorance, is the cause of all suffering. So not knowing our true nature, we identify with things that we're not, and uh, and then they end up disappointing us, like growing old, getting sick. Uh, societies change. We've seen just the changes in in British society over the past 50 years. And how can you stop change? How can you make it go back to a time when when you felt it was better than it is today? Or there's so much uh, frightening predictions for the future on the media because we project into the future a kind of change that we we don't want. Nobody wants to see the uh, climate change or or the you know we're hoping that eventually wars will stop and and everybody will become enlightened and live a happy life on planet Earth as we take care of the climate and and uh, share our lives in this generous uh, idealistic way, but that's not going to happen. That, that is an ideal, that's a desirable wish, a beautiful idea. But the world is like this, it's the planet, the history of the planet Earth that we are living on has a, a history of very violent changes. That no individual human being or social group can stop or prevent. Just contemplating one's humanity being incarcerated in a physical human body in a universe that's vast and mysterious. You know, this is setting up a scenario for you to reflect upon. Just this idea of being an isolated form. One of the great problems and suffering of, of human beings is this sense of loneliness, of fear, of dread. And so much of uh, what we want is like permanent stability, permanent uh, conditions that, that we can manage and control according to our ideals. But wisdom is the ability to awaken to this changingness that we're always experiencing, but may never really uh, notice or see in any profound way. So when I hear <clears throat> monks or nuns telling me they don't, they need to develop wisdom, you know, I try to point out, Wisdom you don't develop, you have it already, you just learn to use it. And so the Buddha's teaching is, is a, this a kind of investigation, like the Four Noble Truths, taking this connect, uh, common experience that we all share as human beings, and all created beings experience suffering, because we're living in a, in, in this sensory form. This is a very delicate, form to live your life in as a human individual. 
you know, so you've got these senses that have their objects, the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. The human species is a thinking species, so we think, we create languages. We have memories that go way back to early childhood. We can acquire knowledge we, in, in modern life. Just think of the miracles of modern science, modern psychology, uh, as they investigate the conditioned realm that, that we're experiencing. But they're all coming from the sense that, that the conditions are, you know, is, is the real world, the conditioned realm, the earth uh, itself is, is our refuge. Uh, the society is our refuge. Uh, the religion we, aspire, we, we identify with is our refuge. We're always looking for the family. Uh, a good family is our refuge. We're looking for stability and safety in conditions that are subject to change. So suffering is the result of that because they change whether in some, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But you can't, you know, you can't make everything better and better. Things arise and then they reach a peak and then they decay. So like the human body itself, when you're born, you have a, a new body, conscious form that grows and develops, progresses, learns to walk, learns to talk, goes to school, uh, develop, uh, you know, a sense of your self-worth as a teenager. And you live to 30 years old and then you, you start feeling you're growing old. At least that's how I felt when I turned 30. I felt youth has passed. Now I look at 30 years old as young. But the conditions have changed. <laughs> when you're 87 years old, 30-year-old people look very young to you. But at 30, when you reach 30, it does, you know, the kind of youthful I, reality you identify with is, is no longer available. And that's the natural flow of conditions. They, they, they begin, they, they progress, and then they fade away. And just by investigating that, watching it, witnessing change through, through what, through the eyes, through the ears, through sound, through smell, taste, touch. How long can you smell a fragrant perfume? You know, how long does that last? You know, so we smell the flowers, the spring flowers, but you can't sustain that fragrant order, odor for very long when it changes. Or sound, just the, the word as I'm speaking, arise and cease very quickly. You can't sustain a word for very long, and then it's gone. Where does it go? What we see, you know, in terms of 
vision, you know, from the morning to the noon to the evening to night. We usually go to sleep at night where we close our eyes, but during the day we see the, the, the fading of the day. And that's the way, you know, that's ability to see, to observe. If we identify with our sight, with our ability to see objects with our eyes, then that can be a lot of suffering because we all have, the eyes can degenerate, weaken, they don't get better and more sharp. As you grow older, they tend to wear out. And what is it that observes this? That observes the impermanence of sound, of what you hear, see, smell, taste, what you touch, what you think. Your emotions arise and cease according to many other conditions. But what is it that's stable through all the changingness that we experience through these forms? So this is a question, a wisdom question, to ask yourself, what is, remains through all this changingness that we have to experience that we're conditioned to identify with the changing conditions only. We've never been conditioned to, to reflect on change, but to identify with it. The thinking process is very interesting because thought, the ability to think, to have language and, and a retentive memory, that can change. We spend our youth acquiring knowledge, going to school, universities, and so forth, acquiring all kinds of interesting or boring facts and figures, ideas, concepts, and they can all disappear. They arise and cease. Our memories, we can lose our memories. Because memories are ephemeral, they change. So you read, you know, I remember reading the biography of an Indian uh, from India who was president, very famous president of India when it was, uh, when it reached independence from Britain in 1947. And he was a great scholar, a kind of learned man, a man of great knowledge and, and acquired knowledge. And then he, he lost all his whole memory in his old age. So all that acquired knowledge, there's nothing wrong with it, but if we depend on that for happiness and identity, then it's going, we're going to lose it. In old age, like I have memory losses called senior moments where I can't remember something that was obvious to me a few minutes ago. And then if I make that into a problem, then I suffer. But if I just recognize it as the natural degeneration of something that 
began and will end, then it's okay. It's the way things are, the way things should be. So we, this is using wisdom to understand Dhamma. Now the word Dhamma is a Pali word, Sanskrit word, that we use in the English context. So it's when we take refuge in Dhamma, what does that really mean? You know, when many of you who are born in Buddhist families, in Buddhist societies, it's part of your culture. So saying Dhammang Saranangachami is just part of a tradition, a ceremony. Uh, you go to the temple and the monk gives you the refuges and you recite and talk about the Dhamma and take refuge in the Dhamma. But then in terms of here and now, what does, what does, what is behind that word Dhamma? What does it really mean? Can you find it? Can you observe it? Can you create it with your, with your imagination? Can you, you know, you can't objectify Dhamma. You can't find it as an object. And yet we take refuge in it. So what are we doing when we take refuge in Dhamma? Is it can be just a ceremony, part of being a Buddhist, Theravada Buddhist, that we take refuge in the Dhamma. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But with wisdom, we're investigating what do we mean? What is Dhamma? in terms of reality. Is it some kind of abstract mystical force in the universe? Or, you know, we can create all kinds of illusions, cosmic vibrations, or or uh, the mystery of life, or ultimately use like supreme reality or ultimate reality when we talk about the Dhamma, translating the word dhamma into English, ultimate reality. But those are words, those are English translations of ultimate, of dhamma, ultimate reality. What is that? What is ultimate reality? And, and, and it's an abstract idea, isn't it? It's an English word. In terms of, you know, you can't objectify it. You can't, I can't present ultimate reality to you to show you either through my speech or through visualizing it or anything else. So ask yourself why you can't objectify ultimate reality when you're taking refuge in Dhamma. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a nice thing to take refuge in, but but now we're using wisdom, inquiring into, we're using investigation, what we call Dhamma Vichayo. The second factor of enlightenment is to investigate, not just to grasp ideas from another religion and believe in them because they're good ideas. But the Buddha's teachings are, you know, a very direct invitation to explore, to examine, to investigate. So Buddhism generally, you know, when you talk about Buddhism in general, is a religion 
that still exists in various forms in various countries on the planet. So there's many views and opinions about Buddhism and uh, in Theravada Buddhism there's many opposing uh, opinions about what Buddha actually meant and what his teaching is about and and uh, how to practice it. So in even in within the uh, confines of Theravada Buddhism, there's still a vast lot of a vast amount of opinions and views about how to practice. And then you've got Mahayana, Vajrayana, Hinayana, Zen, various forms of modern vipassana teachings, and and uh, you know you can manipulate the Buddhism into anything you want and because there's, there's no limit to it. When you become a, a Theravadan Buddhist, you can just, we're the original teaching and we're the, the direct teaching of the Buddha. We can, we can pat ourselves on the back and put all other forms of Buddhism down because we assert our righteousness in terms of our belief in the Theravadan form. But then, uh, as I've said many times, the Buddha never taught Buddhism. And what did the Buddha teach? Is Dhamma, the way things are. So how are, what is the way things are? Is that all conditions are impermanent? Then the second statement, all Dhamma is not self, not personal. What does that mean? Anatta, non-self. And when you think about, when I started investigating anatta, non-self, you know, it was, because I was investigating with the sense of a self. I was trying to, to annihilate Pratsumato to make it, you know, I had to let go of all my dead, Robert Jackman. My, all my identities, I, I as this person had to not have any self. And by even thinking that I have no self is still a form of self. If I go around telling everybody I, I have no self, that sounds rather conceited. So what is the self? You know, so we investigate. What, so the first fetter that blinds us to reality is in Pali called Sakyaditi, or we translate that as the ego. So just by using your ego to find the absence of an ego is a, is a hopeless task. Because the ego can't find non-ego. It can create the illusion of a non-ego. I believe that there's no self, no separate self. It's still an illusion. But what is the reality of no self? And Dhamma, all Dhamma is not self. What is Dhamma? These words are, are enigmatic. To be investigated, to be contemplated, to be wondered at. 
So rather than just trying to define Dhamma with more words or feel you have to get rid of yourself as a person to not have any self, you can still investigate these attitudes of I'm, I'm, I have to get rid of my ego, I have to get rid of my attachments to the world, I've got to uh, annihilate this, get rid of that, kill the kilesas, I've got to get samadhi, I've got to get jhanas, I've got to become something, I've got to acquire all kinds of of uh, states, refined states, because at this present moment I, my mind wanders all over the place, I've got to stop it from wandering, and we go on and on endlessly trying to, to uh, control the mind or the body through the ego, through grasping the, the teachings in the scriptures, or what other teachers tell you, or what you read in books. So the, and it's, it's like, you know, trying to find yourself like a, a dog chasing its tail. You know, you never quite get it. And, uh, so, you know, this is where I encourage you to use wisdom. But what is, what is the, the ego? Rather than trying to get rid of it, understand it. It's condition. It's what you think. You have to think to feel an identity with the body. I am this body here. I am this personality. Those are thoughts. And you can be aware of thoughts. They arise and cease. No matter they're good thoughts, stupid thoughts, nonsense, or wise thoughts. Thoughts are creations, are conditions, impermanent conditions that arise and cease. And where do they arise and cease from? Where do thoughts arise from and cease? In consciousness, isn't it? If we were not conscious, we wouldn't think. So consciousness is here and now. And all the thoughts you have about yourself, whether they're right or wrong, intelligent or stupid, deluded or uh, smart, or you're a visionary or spiritually oriented person, uh, a mystic, or just a hopeless, worldly, materialist, however you conceive yourself to be, it's all thoughts, words that arise and cease in the present. So Dhamma Vijaya, this investigation, is to investigate that, to see the presence and absence of thought, of a word. So this is quite simple. It doesn't take a lot of of, you know, concentration to do this. It takes the willingness to be the Bhutto or the observer, the Buddha, knowing Dhamma. The way things are. And it's not like me personally knowing the way things are. Because 
you know, I can give talks about the way things are, but I can't make you, I can't, you know, enlighten you or force you to do anything other than encourage you to investigate conscious awareness here and now in all its manifestations, whether it's positive or negative or however you feel about yourself as a personality, as an individual, however you're culturally conditioned to see the world around you, uh, you know, your own preferences, prejudices, biases, opinions and views are all conditions that arise and cease. And where do all conditions arise and cease? In the present moment. If they arise, like words arise and cease very quickly. And when words are no longer, when they've ceased, there's silence. So you begin to awaken to silence. Notice it. Pay respect to silence as your refuge, rather than some abstract idea of Dhamma. Because between each thought, between each word, there's space. And space doesn't have a sound. There's silence, consciousness, it's like this. This is using wisdom, panya, Pali word for wisdom is panya, to investigate. And even if you're illiterate, you can still do this. Like at the time of the Buddha, most of those arahants probably couldn't read or write. Mass education wasn't available in India 2,565 years ago. So sometimes being educated is an obstacle because you think you can know everything through studying, through words, through concepts, through memory. So we form a conceit, you know, of being a Mahapandit, a, a wise sage, because I've read all the scriptures, the Abhidhamma and everything, and I'm an authority on the Pali tradition, Sanskrit, Tibetan, and we can, uh, you know, it's admirable in its way. But if seen only on a personal level, it doesn't lead to liberation. Knowing all that, having all that knowledge, can be the very conceit that blinds you to the simple reality of suffering is like this. So on Magha Puja Day, 1250 Arahants assembled to pay respect to the Buddha, And then we think, that's a lot of arahants for, you know, for our minds. 
In Thailand, for example, everybody's looking for arahants. <laughs> and, and it's all from the ego, isn't it? What is Ajahn Chah an arahant? Or, you know, we, people have asked me these kind of questions. Was Buddha taught? Buddha Dasa an arahant? Or, and some people say yes and others say no. <laughs> and why are we looking for arahants? Because we, cling to the idea of it, and we want to see one for ourselves. But you'll never find an arahant if you're using the ego, the conditioned views you hold, no matter how profound they might seem, as an object. So what does that mean? What is the you know, the ultimate state of arahantship or perfect enlightenment. And so it's not a person, it's anatta, non-self. So different teachers have different personalities. You know, so if you go to Thailand looking for an arahant, then from the ego, then you tend to use your critical mind if you don't particularly like the arahant you're sitting with, you think he couldn't be an arahant. And so we form biases or prejudices or views uh, acquired from our own personal preference or our own view of what an arahant is without realizing what we're doing. So we can spend a lifetime looking for an arahant to be, my teacher has to be an arahant is very conceited uh, condition to grasp. But these teachings of the Buddha are not about acquiring an identity like an arahant, but to be free from all identities. But what remains when you let go of everything, when there's, when the realization, the reality of anatta happens, You're living in a society that's still very conditioned. So you have traditions like this one, Theravada, Thai forest tradition. These traditions, you know, they, they're the vehicles that carry the, the teachings of the Buddha from one generation to the next. If there was no Sangha, no Vinaya established, then the teachings of Gotama the sage, the, the enlightened master of 2,565 years ago would have long been forgotten by now. So the Vinaya is a form about action and speech. To do good, refrain from doing evil. To not abuse others. To purify the mind. These are words, but they're, they're good, it's good advice. And that's what the Buddha gave to these 1250 arahants, just a simple, simple advice like, do good, refrain from doing evil, purify the mind. So on this day of Magapuja, which is today, and now this, offering this as a reflection, 
it's the tradition and um, it's, it, it gives us an opportunity to have an assembly like this come together and to reflect on the way things are. Puto, or this mantra we use, is a witnessing position. When you witness, being a witness is not a person anymore. So you, you, know, you don't become a Buddha as a person. So you chant the puto, or you use it as a word to reflect upon. And it arises and ceases like any other word. But it also is uh, pointing at awareness here and now. So taking refuge in Buddha is being aware here and now. It's like this. Awareness, puto, Buddha is not a critic. He's not telling you how you should be or how the world should be. It's like, it's pointing to the way it is, this inexorable changing nature of phenomena. And Dhamma, there's, there's no separateness. There's complete wholeness or perfection. Dhamma can be translated as complete and whole. It's, it's not divided in any way. And you can't find it as an object because that's what you are, ultimately. And when you realize that for yourself, that's the end of suffering. So I offer this for today's reflection. Mm -hmm.